Please rise for the reading of God's word. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On, on what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. I don't know how many of you look in the bulletin at all, or specifically at the sermon title. Um, I could have probably just called this sermon title God's Justice, and that would have been good, um, but I didn't. Um, so our title is When Life is Unfair, A Lesson from the Jays. Now, we're not going to talk about the Blue Jays and how they've traded away 90% of their roster in the last couple days, it seems like. Maybe that seems unfair to some of you, but that's not where we're going. Um, we're going to talk about some different Jays this morning, and I think you'll figure that out pretty soon. But let's just take a second to pray first, and then we'll get to it. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be here today, and, um, and for all those who are here um, God, I just pray that you would work through me this morning. I pray that you would um, give me your words and, and prevent me from saying things that I shouldn't. And um, God, I just pray that you would be touching hearts, give us open hearts and minds to hear what you have to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we are going to start in Job, um, not in the passage that was read for us, but a couple chapters later. I'm not going to go into the whole story of Job, but after many afflictions and trials and difficulties, and a lot of wondering why this all happened to him, we get to God's reply to Job. And in verse 6 to 8 of chapter 40, so just two chapters later, this is what it says. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? This passage for a long time has been my second favorite verse in the Bible, um, and it has recently jumped up to being my favorite verse in the Bible, and I'll get to the reason for that later. Uh, you know, there's a Hebrew word here. Um, okay, let me just stop for a second, because some of you have been looking at me funny ever since I came up here. If you're in the back, maybe you haven't been, because you couldn't see my feet. Um, there was one time when we were kids, my youngest brother was probably about seven or eight, he walked into church like this, with his pants tucked into his socks, and my mom was not very impressed. She said, what are you doing? Like, change your, change your socks there. Put them on properly. And his response was, well, what's the point of wearing new socks if no one can see them? And I thought, you know, 
that is a valid question. No one really gets to see your socks when you're up here. It's a little bit uncomfortable, though. So, um, <clears throat> That also does remind me of a quote from my dad. Now, he probably got this from someone else. I'm not sure who. But he once told us, Hebrew is like underwear. It's good to have, but you don't usually have to show it. And I thought, oh, that's probably true. So there are actually a lot of Hebrew words in this passage, but we're not going to talk about any of them specifically. Um, we're just going to move on. Now, some pretty bad things had happened to Job in his life in these past, this past little while before him, and for no good reason that he could see. It seemed to him that this was pretty unfair. And maybe it seems that way to you too, even with a little bit broader picture and a little bit more context. Maybe it still seems unfair. So was it actually unfair? What right did God have to do all this stuff to Job? And there's something we need to kind of step back and take a look at, and we need to understand about God, and that's that he's sovereign. But that's a word that a lot of people don't really understand, I think. We kind of throw it around sometimes. God is sovereign. Yes, the sovereignty of God. Okay, that's a thing. But what does it really mean? Does it mean he's in control of everything? Does it mean he micromanages everything? Does it mean we have no control or no say or no choice in anything that happens in our lives? We had the opportunity to study this in youth group this past spring for a night, and it was, uh, it was a good one. I found a definition of God's sovereignty that I really like and I think is accurate, and it's this. God's, God being sovereign means he has the right and the ability to do whatever he wants. He's got the right and the ability to do whatever he wants. So let's look at those things individually just quickly. Can we doubt his ability to do what he wants? I hope not. Jeremiah 32, 17 says this, Ah, Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and earth by your great power and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for him. God is all-powerful. He has the ability to do whatever he wants. What about the other part, the right? Does God have the right to do anything he wants? If you take a look at Isaiah 45, verse 9, this is what it says. Does clay say to the one forming it, what are you making? Or does your work say, your work has no handles? He's the potter and we're the clay. And he has the right to do what he wants with us. If something seems unfair or unjust in your life, blaming God is not the right answer. <coughs> Excuse me. If you go back to our passage, God says, would you really challenge my justice? I hope not. That's a pretty gutsy move to challenge God's justice. And he explains a little bit more with the second question he asks in that verse. Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Where are my Lord of the Rings people here today? I know lots of them are not here, but there are a few. Okay, that's good. <laughs> there are a few. It's like there's a scene in the two towers where Theoden the king is challenged on a decision he's making. And he basically says, he turns to the guy and he basically says, last time I checked, I was the king, not you. And that's basically what God's saying here to Job. You know what, Job, I'm the king and you're not. It's very interesting. Job kind of straddles the line all through the book, in my mind at least. He straddles the line between questioning God, why are you doing this, and challenging God, or calling God guilty for what's going on. He's kind of hovering on that line quite a bit. And if he continues to press that he's innocent and doesn't deserve any of this, he gets dangerously close to calling God guilty for what's going on. 
And that is precarious ground to be on. We'll come back to Job a little bit later. Now, I had specifically asked Jaira if she was going to be here this morning because I have a story to tell about her. Um, and she, she said she would be here. So I thought, oh, great. And then she told me yesterday she's not going to be here after all. But I said, you know what, I'm telling the story anyway, so um, that's fine. Two summers ago in Romania, I discovered in conversation with Jaira that she had never learned to ride a bike. And I... <coughs> Excuse me. So I thought, you know what, this is a pretty sad situation. Here's someone who's never learned to ride a bike. Maybe I should teach her how. There's lots of bikes running around in the village. So yeah, I could probably do this. This will be kind of a fun little experiment, a little challenge for me. Kind of tricky though, and with some pressure. I've never taught anyone to ride a bike. I don't really know how to do it. I kind of have this general idea in my mind. So we fooled around for quite a while trying to get her going, and eventually she, she caught on. She could get herself started. She had a pretty good run down the road. She had good speed and good balance. She also had a pretty hard crash at the end. Um, now, I'm not sure what went through her head at that particular moment or the next few minutes or the next few days as all those scrapes and bruises healed. No pun intended, Isaiah. But um, she never spoke a word of complaint, at least that I heard. Uh, she certainly could have easily blamed me for that and justifiably. You see, I taught her how to go, but I never taught her how to stop. And that was kind of a problem. You need to know how to do that when you're biking. And so it was totally my fault. In that case, when something went wrong for her, she could easily assign blame to me, where it belonged, and she would be right to do so. It's a little bit different with God, because he's never the one to blame. He doesn't make mistakes, he doesn't accidentally omit things, or think later, oh yeah, I was going to do that and I forgot. That's not what God does. And so when something goes wrong for you, where you find yourself struggling against temptation, maybe giving in to temptation, who do you blame? It's pretty easy to point the finger at the people around you, your friends, maybe your parents, your boss, your circumstances, or maybe at God who put you in those circumstances, gave you those parents, gave you that job that you have this boss now. It's dangerous ground. I stumbled across a great example of God's sovereignty and how little we understand God's sovereignty um, a few months ago at the Senior High Youth Retreat at Camp Caroline. Um, it's the story of James's death. You know the one. Maybe you don't know the one. It's not a very well-known story. And so I'll, I'll explain it a little bit. In Acts 12, we read about the arrest and imprisonment of Peter and the miraculous rescue that God orchestrates to bring him out again. There's an angel in the story and a bright light and some mystery and suspense and a ghost. Well, it wasn't actually a ghost, but they thought maybe it was. But it's a good story. It's got all these great elements. The church is gathered together to pray for Peter for his release. But the funny thing is, when he gets out, he goes to the church, knocks on the door. They don't believe it's him in the, at all, and it's kind of ironic. But they eventually get convinced, and they find out it's him. It's great. But it's kind of a weird, funny story that's super cool. And some of you are sitting there thinking, I thought this was supposed to be the story of James's death, not Peter's rescue. And uh, you're, you're looking back at your bulletin, and it's a lesson from the J's, not a lesson from the P's. And you're right. So we're going to come back to James. A few verses earlier in that same chapter, verses 1 and 2 of Acts 12, tell us that just before all this happened, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And that's kind of all we know about that. But my question is, why would God go to all this trouble of rescuing Peter and just leave James to die? Did the church 
pray more for Peter? Did they forget to pray for James altogether? Probably not. Could God have saved James? Absolutely. Why didn't he save James? I have no idea. I don't understand it. I, I don't know. It seems to make more sense to me if he's going to save Peter. Probably a few days later, he probably should have just saved James too. And then you got more apostles. There's, there's more guys that can spread the gospel. It seems logical to me, but I don't understand it. But it's also not my place to tell God he's doing it wrong. Saving white and the ability to do what he wants to do. Even if it means saving one person and letting another person die. And that's a hard thing to think about. But I can't challenge his justice on that. Let's look at a couple other biblical situations that are kind of similar, in which things seem unfair and people have opportunity to blame God. Maybe the best example of this, apart from Job, is the story of Joseph. Who is Joseph, you may ask? Well, my friend Jairus over there once described him this way. He's 16. Mark has known him for a long time. We talk about him at Thornhill Baptist. <laughs> Sorry, Jairus. <laughs> it's probably not very helpful for most of you, so I'll give you a bit better background. Um, here's Joseph. He's a 16, 17-year-old boy. He's maybe a little bit arrogant. He's maybe a little bit of a show-off. We don't know. Maybe. Some people assume that. Maybe... He's a little bit ignorant of what people think about him. We don't know. We do know he's a little bit of a tattletale. We're told that in Scripture. And we also know he's his dad's favorite. We think he's a pretty good kid overall, though. And his life just goes downhill. He's abused and abandoned by his brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's falsely accused of sexual assault. He's thrown in jail and he's forgotten about. But years later, when his father dies and his brothers think Joseph's going to take revenge on them, Joseph is able to say this from Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. And I think usually when people read these verses, the focus is on the fact that God took this terrible situation that the brothers intended for evil and God turned it around for good, the survival of many people. And that's certainly a viable, a valid thing to take out of that passage. It's worth noting. It's amazing. But I also want you to take, a, take notice of Joseph's question at the start. Am I in the place of God, Joseph says. He understands he's not in the place of God. And he knows that it's God's place to justify or condemn people, not his own place. And if Joseph had developed a vengeful attitude towards his brothers, that would be challenging God's justice. And he would have to declare God guilty for setting up this whole situation in order to justify his anger or his vengeance, which he doesn't do. And that's to Joseph's credit. God now, Pastor Ryan talked about Jonah a couple months ago. And when God relents from the disaster he was going to impart on Nineveh, and he decides to save Nineveh, and it's 120,000 people, as well as many animals. It's funny that that's thrown in there, because you'd think the city of 120,000 people is so much more important than however many animals they have. But it's mentioned very clearly in Jonah. 120,000 people, as well as many animals. So God decides to save all these people and animals, What's Jonah's response? 
Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. What a thing to complain about. Jonah is furious, and he blames God completely for everything that's happened. But it's all backwards. Jonah is complaining that God is too loving and too merciful. And that's how Jonah justifies his own actions, fleeing from God to Tarshish. His anger, his general terrible attitude, it's all God's fault for being too loving. It's a very strange situation. And part of me thinks, when God's hearing Jonah say this, he's probably thinking to himself, you know, Jonah... Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? That's exactly what Jonah's doing. Now, my second favorite book of the Bible has a great example that fits in well here. Any, uh, maybe any of the youth can identify my second favorite book of the Bible. You have three seconds. Now, if, if, if Kyla was here, she would probably get it. Is James. Second favorite book. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. When I'm struggling with a particular temptation, I often start to think, my mind starts to wander off in all kinds of directions, and sometimes I start thinking, wouldn't it be great if God just removed this desire from me totally? Wouldn't that solve the problem? Wouldn't that be a pretty clean, easy solution? That would fix the problem. And sometimes I start thinking, well, wasn't it God who made me this way in the first place? Didn't he give me the desires I have, didn't he make me the way I am, my mind worked the way it works? So if you go back far enough, isn't it kind of his fault? That's a risky thought process to get into. James is clear that we're not to blame God for our temptations because they come from our own sinful nature. Blaming God for something like that is just a bad idea. It's declaring him guilty to justify yourself. Now we have one more biblical example from my favorite book of the Bible, <laughs> and I doubt anyone's going to come up with this one, um, but it's Jude, one of the shortest books, also a fascinating book. The book of Jude, only one chapter, talks about false teachers, mostly, and what their eternal fate is going to be. So again, I'll read you a couple of verses. Verses 12 and 13 of the book of Jude. These are the ones, talking about the false teachers, who are like dangerous reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you, nurturing only themselves without fear. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, pulled out by the roots, wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Seems like kind of a harsh punishment. Maybe these false teachers are just, you know, they almost got it right, but they got a couple details wrong. Maybe they're just a little misinformed. Maybe they're looking at things from a different perspective. Maybe they're modernizing the gospel. 
God says this is going to be their fate. And check this out. A few verses earlier, in verse 4, it says, there are some men who were designated for such judgment long ago. They were designated for this judgment long ago. Designated by whom? It's got to be by God. And doesn't that seem to make it even a little bit worse? Is God setting these people up for failure? Is he designating them for judgment beforehand and then condemning them? It's very confusing. And we don't really understand it, I don't think. I don't know the complexities of the determination of guilt in a case like this, but I do know it's not a good idea to question it or to challenge God's justice. Am I really going to be the one to claim that God is wrong in declaring these false teachers guilty, condemning them to being pulled out by the roots and left to wander in the blackest darkness forever? Am I the one that's going to make that claim, saying, no, God, you can't do that? I don't think I can declare him guilty. So let's go back to Job for a moment. Job never found out, as far as we know, why he went through everything he went through. And really, neither do we. We get this bizarre and thrilling and also kind of terrifying glimpse into the throne room of God at the very start of Job, and it's fascinating. But we don't really get a good reason, or at least a reason that's good enough for me. It seems kind of arbitrary and seems kind of mean of God to do all this stuff to Job. Seems like a really tough situation to put him in. But to Job's credit, for most of the book, he pleads innocent, yes, but he also defends God's right to do what he wants to do. Job chapter 9, the first four verses of the chapter. Um, then Job answered, Yes, I know what you've said is true, but how can a person be justified before God? If one wanted to take him to court, he could not answer God once in a thousand times. God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? Job says, God is wise and all-powerful. That combination is pretty unbeatable. What am I supposed to do against that? I can't, I can't stand up to him. He's confident that God knows what he's doing, even if Job doesn't understand it, and he knows he can't challenge God on what's going on. This is the same conclusion we find in the first J book of the Bible. Genesis, that is correct. First J book of the Bible. Genesis 18.25. Won't the judge of all the earth do right? Won't the judge of all the earth do right? Won't he? Can't we trust him to do right? I hope we can. I think we have to. So enough of the biblical people. Uh, we've looked at Job and James and Joseph and Jonah and Jude. Also Jaira and Jairus a little bit. Um, there are lots of other biblical characters and books we could look at. Judges, Jeremiah, Judah, Jabez, that's an interesting one. Jezebel, another interesting one. Joshua, there's lots more. But maybe someone here needs to think about their own life and whether they're blaming or accusing God or challenging his justice in some area of their life. Maybe there's a, a Jason or a Jeff, a Joel, a Jenna. A Joanne or two. Maybe there's a Janelle or a Jen or a Joyce, a Joaquin, a Jonathan, a Jeannie, a Julia, a Jerry, a Joseph. You know, that church directory does come in handy every once in a while. Not very often, but sometimes it's good to have. Maybe there's a Josh or two out there. 
who needs to stop and think. Maybe there's one right here who needs to stop and think. You know, maybe there's someone here who felt like their life was pretty unfair this past week. Let me set up a hypothetical situation for you. Uh, we'll say this hypothetical character is a single guy in his mid-30s. We'll call this person Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, that's what we'll call him. Maybe Jehoshaphat was visiting his parents a couple hours away this week. He had deliberately planned a short visit because he had lots of stuff to do back home. Uh, but he did, when he went to leave his parents' house, his car didn't start. And that was kind of a frustrating experience for him. Maybe he tried everything he and his dad could think of. Nothing worked. Maybe they did some research on the internet, tried a bunch more things, still didn't work. Maybe he was feeling pretty annoyed by this point and had to stay another night at his parents' house, which he wasn't too excited to do. Maybe Jehoshaphat and his parents played some games that night, which, you know, you think would maybe help him unwind and relax a little bit, but he was distracted, he couldn't focus very well, he didn't do very well, he struggled even in those games, and maybe that frustrated him even more. Maybe he couldn't take his mind off the hassle and expense of bringing in his car the next day to get fixed. Maybe he had to cancel his disc golf plans the next day with some of his friends. Maybe, just maybe, he was constantly wondering how serious this problem with his car was and how much it was going to cost him to get fixed. And maybe he was worried about the sermon prep time he was missing out on by not being at home. And maybe he started using some terminology in the safety of his own head that he never would have spoken out loud, especially around his parents. And maybe, just maybe, Jehoshaphat started thinking that God could have easily made his car start. Or he could have prevented the problem in the first place. And if God really wanted him to preach a good sermon, that's probably what he should have done. He shouldn't have let this happen. And maybe he wondered why God would mess up his plans like this. Now, Jehoshaphat, good thing he's just a hypothetical character. Let me tell you this, though. If I were there at the time, or if any of you find yourself in this strangely specific hypothetical situation, um, I'll have something to share with you. I would tell you that God is sovereign, yes, and he could have changed or prevented the whole car situation from happening, but I'll also remind you that it's not our place to judge God's actions or his inactions, and that maybe he has something else in mind, something we can't see. And that, as it turns out, declaring God guilty to justify your own anger or frustration or temper probably isn't a good idea. And also, incidentally, I'd tell you that if your car is going to break down somewhere, probably in your parents' driveway is a pretty good place for that to happen. And one more thing. If you get into an accident 24 hours after all these events and wreck your car and don't have a car anymore... Maybe you'll find yourself wishing you were back in the place where your biggest problem was your car not starting. It would probably give you a little bit of perspective, I think. Anyway, you can talk to Jehoshaphat later about that if you see him, and if he were a real person. Uh, let's move on. There are dozens of other areas of our lives where we could bring this concept of blaming God and justifying ourselves in and talk about some different examples, but I'm of the opinion that uh, applying to our daily lives is not necessarily the most important part of studying scripture. We've looked at a handful of people who seem to be in some sort of unfair or difficult situations. Situations in which blaming or accusing God would have been the easiest response. Some of them did blame God, and it was a bad idea. 
Some of them didn't, and it's a good thing they didn't. So just stop and think about this for a minute. Who would declare God guilty to justify themselves? I'm sure if you thought of it in those terms, if, you, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you thought of it in those terms, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't sit there thinking, yes, God, you are guilty in this matter, and I am innocent. I don't think we usually think of it in quite those terms. Sometimes we do it and don't realize it. But who would directly, deliberately do something like that? Who would condemn the creator to justify the created? Who would have the audacity to do that? Well, there's only one person I can think of who could pull that off, and that's our last J of the day. It's Jesus. I was just glancing at this verse a couple months ago and was shocked to realize this connection. It hit me like a truck. I was reading it. Okay, well, not quite a truck. Maybe like a small car, large motorcycle. It did hit me, though. I was reading it. I thought, whoa. This is what catapulted Job 40, verse 8, from my second favorite to my favorite verse. This connection. God himself chose to send his son to live among us, to die for us, and to be resurrected so that we could be made clean. He declared himself guilty to justify us. Does that seem unfair to you? It does to me. I can't fathom it, and it doesn't seem to make any sense. It's not an even trade in my mind. Why would he do that for lowly old me? He's so far above me. Why would he do that? It's not fair. Or maybe you're on the other side and you're thinking it's not fair because surely one man's death can't balance out all the terrible things I've done. It's not a fair trade. It's not good enough. But you know what God's response is to that? Job 40 verse 8. Would you really challenge my justice? If God says that exchange is fair, and that Jesus' sacrifice paid for my sin, not the part, but the whole. Am I really going to be the one to challenge him on that? I hope not. I hope not. Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? I hope I wouldn't. But he already did. And we can thank him for that. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much that you had this plan to declare yourself guilty in order to justify us, even when it doesn't make sense to us and it doesn't seem fair one way or the other. God, it's so far beyond any plan that we would have come up with. And it just goes to show that you're on a whole different level than we are. But God, I pray that um, this morning we would um, be touched by something here whether it's something in one of these passages or, or one of our songs or whatever, God, just touch hearts and, and do your work this morning. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.